many of you uh, traveled for spring break? Anybody get to travel for spring break? A few people. We uh, went to Missouri to visit my family. They all live there. And so um, I took the big kids. Jackson is 10 and Annabeth is seven. And Amanda and Willa flew on an airplane because Willa is only five months and uh, we didn't know how she would do on the long, long journey there. So I was just with the big kids, and uh, I like to get there as fast as possible. You know, it's fun to go home. It's good to go home. And, and so I wanted to make a game out of it without exceeding the speed limit beyond reasonable measure, of course. <laughs> and so we uh, stopped to get gas right outside of our neighborhood, and I, uh, I knew I had to get buy-in from them because they were going to be the ones who would slow me down, Jackson and Annabeth. And so I needed a, to get the vision with them in their heart. And I knew that we could break every record that needed to be broken. And so at the gas station, we're getting gas. And I'm like, guys, let's make this a game. Let's take this on as a challenge. Let's see if we can get there in less than 10 hours. Let's just see if we can do it. It's probably impossible. I don't know if anybody in the history of the world has ever gone from Houston, Texas to Springfield, Missouri in 10 hours, but we might be able to be the very first ones to do this. But you gotta be with me. You gotta be heart and soul with me. When we stop, we gotta make all of our stops. We gotta get food. We gotta get gas. We gotta go to the restroom. We can't raise our hand and say, need to go to the bathroom outside of a scheduled stop. We'll never make it. (laughs) Are you with me? And they were with me all the way. And so I took out my phone and I started the timer and we hit the road and we were flying, not against the speed limit. Of course, I'm a law abiding -abiding, uh, citizen, uh, but uh, we were flying. We were making great time, but we had to stop for lunch just a little north of Dallas. And we uh, decided to go to a taco cabana because they appeared to have the smallest number of cars in the parking lot. (laughs) And so we go in. And we use the restroom efficiently and quickly. And then we go to order our food. Jackson and Annabeth know what they want. They've been studying the menu. Everything is ready. Uh, I I, I start to order. And as soon as I order, I know this is going to be a problem because we are in a hurry. But the Taco Cabana is not in a hurry. (laughs) And so they order order their food. I order my food. And they go to uh, make it. And you can see them making it back there. And it was just taking forever and ever. And I started way back in the back of the restaurant at a table. And about five minutes later, I walked up and was just like, hey, I just want to check on my order. And they're like, we'll bring it to you, sir. And I'm like, great, I got that. I'm just checking on it. Yeah, yeah, it's in, in line. And so about five minutes after that, I start just creeping towards the, uh, the front there. You know, just I just wanted to actually go back and cook it with them. That's because we were in a hurry. By the time they actually gave me my food, they didn't have to bring it to me. They just had to hand it to me because literally I was right next to them when they were making it. Uh, so that slowed us down. So we had to make up some time. So I didn't let the kids go to the bathroom the rest of the time. <laughs> I'm kidding. I didn't. But there's, a, there's this place uh, on the, the highway that I know that I'm getting close to home. That's when I know that I'm in range and it's on a turnpike. It's in Oklahoma, but uh, it's right near the Missouri line. There's a McDonald's that stretches over the highway. It at one time was the world's largest McDonald's. Uh, I think somebody passed it up now, but it literally stretches over uh, four lanes plus of highway and you go up in there and you can eat over the restaurant. And when I drive underneath that, I know I am in range. I am almost home. I can smell the Missouri line and I can smell my mom's cooking and the way the laundry smells and all that. But that's that place right there is how I know when I'm almost there. You know, we're going to read about the triumphal entry of Jesus uh, today because on this very day, 
a little less than 2,000 years ago, in about AD 29, Jesus got on a donkey and he rode into the city of Jerusalem. And Luke, the author of the gospel that we are going to read these stories from today, he is giving us mile markers on Jesus's journey in to Jerusalem. So we're going to be in chapter 19 today, but if you went back starting in, in earlier in the book, chapters 15, 16, 17, 18, 19, he puts little markers in there so that if you pulled out a map, he would actually tell you what city they were near, and you could put a little pin in it, and you could see that Jesus was making his way to Jerusalem. But before he gets to Jerusalem, he tells a story in Luke chapter 19. It says in verse 11, as they were listening to this, he went on to tell a parable because he was near Jerusalem and they thought the kingdom of God was going to appear right away. Now, we're all familiar with parables. It's a famous thing about Christianity. When Amanda and I lived in England, they had religious education in their public school. And when it came time to talk about Christianity in that public school, they talked about the parables of Jesus. So the parables of Jesus are well known, but they're hard to understand. And because they're hard to understand, they're easily misunderstood. Thankfully, Luke tells us exactly why Jesus is telling this parable. So it helps us to understand what the parable actually means. And he gives two reasons why Jesus is going to tell this this story. Reason number one, because he was near Jerusalem. Now, it's hard for us to understand the meaning and significance of the city of Jerusalem in the first century. It would be like if you took Washington, D.C., New York City and Los Angeles and just formed them into one giant important city. Jerusalem was the political capital. Uh, Jerusalem was the social capital. Uh, Jerusalem was the financial capital. And on top of that, it was the religious capital as well. Uh, Its significance was beyond our wildest imagination. So they're near Jerusalem and Jesus is from Galilee. Galilee would be like saying that you were from South Dakota. It's great. It's pretty there. I hear. Never been personally. If you met somebody from South Dakota, you wouldn't be like, tell me more about South Dakota. You would be like, awesome. He's from Galilee. And their Galileans had a reputation of just They were not people from the south. They were not people from Judea. They were not people from the capital city of Jerusalem. So imagine trying to be a politician. Imagine trying to run for president, but never actually going to Washington, D.C., never going to Washington, D.C. to live, to be a senator, to be a representative. You just did all of your, you know, campaigning and fundraising in South Dakota. I'm sure you could make it happen, but eventually people would be like, when are you going to D.C.? Imagine trying to be an actor or a musician in South Dakota. It would be like, great, you're the biggest thing in Bismarck. That's uh, fantastic. You know, but when are you going to Los Angeles? When are you going to try to make it in New York? So Jesus is from Galilee, but if he is the Messiah, which means he is the king, then eventually he's going to need to be in Jerusalem. And so he tells them this story because he's near Jerusalem. And then the second reason that he tells this story, this parable, is because they thought the kingdom of God was going to appear right away. Now, The disciples believe that Jesus is the Messiah. In fact, Jesus has embraced that. He is the Christ. Um, 
He, he knows that. He's said that to his disciples. They knew what the Messiah was going to do, but they didn't know how the Messiah was going to do it. So they had some Old Testament prophecies. They had some stories from their forefathers and ancestors that described what the Messiah was going to do, but they didn't know how he was going to do it, so they just filled in the blanks. So they knew the Messiah was going to be the one that God was going to use to bring Israel back underneath the authority of God and the authority of God alone. Because at this time, they live under the authority of the Roman government. And before that, they lived under the authority of the Greek government, the Greek empire. And before that, it was the Egyptians. And before that, it was the Babylonians. And before that, it was the Assyrians. So for as long as they can remember, they've lived under someone else's authority. But the Messiah was going to come along so that it would be like in the days of their ancestors where they didn't have some other earthly king that they couldn't see God was going to be in charge and they were going to live in God's kingdom and the Messiah was going to be the person, the king that God would use to do that. That's what they knew the Messiah was going to do, but they didn't know how he was going to do it. So they just took what they knew about kings and about empires and governments and they just filled in all the blanks and they got some of those blanks wrong. So they thought that Jesus is coming into Jerusalem as the Messiah. We're going to be underneath God's authority. That means he's going to sit on a physical throne because that's what kings do. They thought he was going to wear a physical crown. They thought he was going to have a confrontation with the Roman Empire because the Roman Empire is not going to willingly give up its territory. So they're filling in all the blanks with this. They think if Jesus is going to be a king on a throne with a crown, he's going to need assistance. He's going to need helpers. He's going to need rulers. That's why James and John bring their mom along with them, not too far removed from the stories that we're reading today. And they say, uh, Jesus, we want you to say yes to us before we ask you the question. And Jesus says, well, what's your question? And he says, they say, we want to sit at your right hand and at your left. What they mean is when you are on your physical throne, we want to be second in charge and third in charge. That's why at the Last Supper, when Jesus lifts up the bread and he says, this is my body broken for you. And he lifts up the cup and he says, this is my blood shed for you. And in that same meal, that Jesus is doing this, the disciples are arguing over who is the first and who is the last. They're trying to rank themselves. Why would they do that at such an important moment? Because they think Jesus is going to sit on an earthly throne with an earthly crown and have an earthly government, and they're jockeying for the appropriate positions. They want those places of honor. So Jesus knows these two things, that he's near Jerusalem, and he, he knows that they think that he's going to set up a kingdom that they can see and that would appear right away. So he tells them the story, but he knows his kingdom is not appearing right away. They're thinking thrones and crowns and earth and he's thinking cross and death, resurrection, ascension and eventual return. That's how his kingdom is going to be formed. So this is a story that he tells him. Chapter 12 or chapter 19, verse 12. Therefore, he said, a nobleman traveled to a far country to receive for himself authority to be king and then return. He called 10 of his slaves, gave them 10 minas, and told them, engage in business until I come back. But his subjects hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, we don't want this man to rule over us. And what's interesting is Jesus may have been reaching back even within his lifetime and using a real event 
and putting it down into the middle of his story. You remember Herod the Great, who was king of Israel at the time that Jesus was born. Well, Herod the Great died in 4 BC, and one of his sons' name was Archelaus, and Archelaus wanted to be the governor of Judea, that southern Israel that included Jerusalem. But he worked... Uh, just as his dad did for the Roman Empire, and he couldn't ascend to that position just because his dad had been king. So literally, he had to go to Rome so that he could have that position. And while he was on his way to Rome, and when he returned, people would send back word to the Roman government, this guy is terrible, he is awful, we don't want him as a king, he is a crazy person. So Jesus may have been reaching back into real events and real history and using it in the story that he's telling. Verse 15, and at his return, having received authority to be king, he summoned those slaves he had given the money to so he could find out how much they had made in business. The first came forward and said, Master, your mina has earned 10 more minas. Well done, good slave, he told them. Because you have been faithful in a very small matter, have authority over 10 towns. The second came and said, Master, your mina has made five minas. So he said to him, you will be over five towns. And another came and said, Master, here is your mina. I have kept it hidden away in a cloth because I was afraid of you. For you're a tough man. You collect what you didn't deposit, and you reap what you didn't sow. And he told him, I will judge you by what you have said, you evil slave. If you knew I was a tough man collecting what I didn't deposit and reaping what I didn't sow, why didn't you put my money in the bank? And when I returned, I would have collected it with interest. So he said to those standing there, take the mina away from him and give it to the one who has 10 minas. But they said to him, master, he has 10 minas. I tell you that everyone who has more will be given And from the one who does not have, even what he does have will be taken away. But bring here these enemies of mine who did not want me to rule over them and slaughter them in my presence. So Jesus tells this story for two reasons. He's near Jerusalem and because his disciples think that the kingdom that he's setting up will appear immediately. And that's what happens. He is coming into Jerusalem and in the That story and the stories that follow, we can see these groups that he's already mentioned in his parable. Group number one are those who reject the king's authority. Group number two are faithful servants. And group number three are unfaithful servants. So we see in the stories that follow, in the moments that follow, we see people actually rejecting Jesus' authority. Look at verse 28. When he had said these things, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. As he approached Bethphage and Bethany at the place called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples and said, go into the village ahead of you. As you enter it, you will find a young donkey tied there on which no one has ever set. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? Say this, the Lord needs it. So those who were sent left and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the young donkey, its owner said to them, why are you untying the donkey? The Lord needs it, they said. Then they brought it to Jesus, and after throwing their robes on the donkey, they helped Jesus get on it. And as he was going along, they were spreading their robes on the road. Now he came near the path down the Mount of Olives, and the whole crowd of the disciples began to praise God joyfully with a loud voice for all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest heaven. And some of the Pharisees from the crowd told him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples And he answered, I tell you, if they were to keep silent, the stones would cry out. So Jesus comes into Jerusalem 
His disciples are lining the road with their coats. They're singing songs, and not just any songs, but songs from the Scripture, from the Old Testament. They're taking and applying to Jesus. And this first group, the Pharisees, they go, that should not be so. Jesus, they shouldn't be applying these holy words to you. Why? Because they thought he was just a man. They just thought he was a teacher. And some of them even thought that he was a fraud. And here, the disciples are taking some of their most sacred words and and laying them at the feet of Jesus. They didn't think it was right. So they said, Jesus, don't you know what they're saying about you? They're saying you're the Messiah. We know you're not the Messiah. Don't let them say these things about you. Because the Pharisees rejected his authority. There were probably an estimated 6,000 Pharisees in Israel at this time, and they loved God's law that God had set up. But in an effort, maybe even a pure-hearted effort to not break God's laws and God's rules, they made some more rules so that these more these other rules would keep them from breaking God's rules. Well, after a while, They broke their rules and eventually broke God's rules. So what did they do? They made more rules. They made rules that would protect them from breaking the rules that they had made, which would protect them from making the rules that God had made. And after a few years after that, not being successful, what did they do? They made more rules. And on and on and on it went. So by the time of Jesus, the Pharisees, they love their rules. Most of them don't have anything to do with the heart of God. They just have to do with protecting themselves and they would use their rules to judge other people and they loved to judge Jesus. But they're not the only ones who reject Jesus's authority. Jump down to verse 45. And he went into the temple complex and began to throw out those who were selling. And he said, it is written, my house will be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves. And every day he was teaching in the temple complex. The chief priests, the scribes, and the leaders of the people were looking for a way to destroy him, but they could not find a way to do it because all the people were captivated by what they heard. So we we meet three other groups of people that reject Jesus' authority. The chief priests, the scribes, and the leaders of the people. The chief priests, they were old money. They were a part of influential families. Their uh, fathers had been influential. Their grandfathers had been influential. Their family had a lot of weight to throw around the city of Jerusalem. And the chief priests were in charge of the temple. The scribes were like professional ministers. And they really did a lot of the work and the heavy heavy lifting for the chief priests. They were professional uh, rule followers, essentially what they would do. And they acted as the police. If you weren't following the rules the way they thought you should be, they were going to call you out on it. And then the leaders of the people, they're like community leaders. They are like um, influential families, um, influential heads of sections of the city. These are the people in charge and they want to destroy Jesus. Another way to say that they want to assassinate Jesus. Then jump down to chapter 20, verse 1. One day, as he was teaching the people in the temple complex and proclaiming the good news, the chief priests and the scribes with the elders, that's another way of saying the leaders of the community, came up and said to him, tell us by what authority you are doing these things. Who is it who gave you this authority? What they're saying is, how dare you and who told you you could talk to us and all the people like this? Who Gave you the right to be boss. You remember saying that to, uh, to your little sister or your big brother or big sister? Who made you boss? You're not mom and dad. Well, that's their attitude. Is who told you you could speak to us 
like this. And they said to him, tell us by what authority are you doing these things? Who is it who gave you this authority? And this is his response, verse three. He answered them, I will also ask you a question. Tell me, was the baptism of John from heaven or from men? So so you remember John the Baptist? We talked about him a few weeks ago. He lived out in the wilderness and he would baptize people and all of Jerusalem was coming to him and all of Judea was coming to him. And they discussed it among themselves. If we say from heaven, he will say, why didn't you believe him? But if we say from men, all the people will stone us because they are convinced that John was a prophet. So they answered that they did not know its origin. This is like going into the White House and asking a foreign policy question and somebody going, I don't know. This is like going to a CEO of uh, the most influential oil and gas company and asking them about, uh, you know, describe to me what's going on with the oil and gas economy right now and them going, I don't know. I mean, these are the people. There is no one higher than them on the food chain. And Jesus asked them one simple question and in front of all of the people, they go, uh, I don't know. Because they don't want to say John was from God because they didn't say he was from God. They didn't go and be baptized. They didn't respect him. And they didn't want to say, no, John was just a fraud. John just did that on his own. It wasn't from God because all the people that are surrounding them had gone out to see John, had gone to be baptized by John. And Jesus said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Then Jesus tells a parable and he aims his parable right at these men who are rejecting his authority. In verse 19 of chapter 20, it says, Then the scribes and the chief priests looked for a way to get their hands on him that very hour because they knew he had told this parable against them, but they feared the people. So before they just wanted to destroy him, they wanted to assassinate him. But now, because he aimed this, this new parable at them, they want to destroy him right now, within the hour. They want to take him out right now. A few things I want you to notice about these who reject Jesus' authority. Uh, first, their attacks are always tempered by public opinion. Verse 48 of chapter 19, but they could not find a way to do it because all the people were captivated by what they heard. And then they're afraid to answer the question honestly about John the Baptist. They did think John the Baptist was a fraud. They didn't think it was respectable. They thought it was beyond the bounds of normal, but they couldn't say that out loud because they were afraid that the people might stone them. And then it says that they wanted to assassinate him that very hour, chapter 20, verse 19, because they knew he had told this parable against them, but they feared the people. So they have murder in their heart. They're rejecting Jesus' authority, but what tempers their response is public opinion. Because persecution always starts subtly. It always starts in a subtle way. It never comes full on and front on. It starts in small, dark corners, in unseen places, unknown parts of the world, where nobody will ever read the stories and nobody knows enough to care about the people. And then given enough time, the persecution is allowed to come full on. That's why you and I, we can't ever say, you know, hey, we live in America. Persecution will never come here. 
As long as there are people who reject the authority of Jesus, persecution is always possible. But it will start in subtle ways. It won't be out front. You won't read about it on CNN. It will happen in back corners and back alleys and backwater places. And then given enough time, eventually what happens is the public just gets used to it and the public no longer defends the followers of Jesus. So right now it may feel like we're Christians in America. We're the majority. We have leaders and governors and officials and representatives that follow Jesus. They will always look out for our interests. That will never happen in America. Listen, there's no better place than America. I wouldn't want to live anywhere else, even with the thing that's going on right now with the politics. I still want to live here. But it's not out of the bounds of possibility that one day you and I might see the persecution that we had seen in other parts of the world. Because wherever there are people rejecting the authority of Jesus, there are going to be harm to those who follow. It starts in a subtle way, but given enough time. Because that's what happens. This is Sunday. The stories that we're reading about today are from Sunday. And the chief priests, they want him murdered. They want him dead, but they're afraid of the people. So what happens between Sunday and Friday? Just given enough time, eventually the public opinion starts to care less, starts to turn, and the suffering comes. But those who reject Jesus' authority aren't just people who want to do harm. They're, just, they're also people who don't pay attention. Look at chapter 19, verse 41. Jesus has come in, is coming into Jerusalem. And it says, as he approached and saw the city, he wept over it. So imagine that. You're a disciple and you've gone to get Jesus a donkey and you brought it back and he's on it. And you're taking off your coat and everybody's singing the songs and everything is going really well and having a great time. It's a big party. Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna. And, and meanwhile, Jesus is crying. It'd be pretty awkward. You're like, no, 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 this is, a, this is a happy moment. This is a happy moment. You're going to be king. Everything's going to be great. But Jesus is weeping and saying, if you knew this day, what would bring peace? But now it is hidden from your eyes. For the days will come on you when your enemies will build an embarkment against you, surround you and hem you in on every side. And they will crush you and your children within you to the ground. And they will not leave one stone on another in you because you did not recognize the time of your visitation. This actually happens a few years from this, about, uh, about 40 years from this event. The Roman government sends their army and surrounds Jerusalem and everything that Jesus said in this verse happens. But they rejected Jesus' authority because they just didn't notice To us, the triumphal entry is what? It's triumphant. It's huge. It's awesome. The singing songs. But Jesus is just coming in one gate of many gates with a handful of followers that are passionate but are not the majority. Most of the city of Jerusalem kept going on as normal. It was hidden from their eyes. And so there may be some of us in here today that are rejecting the authority of Jesus because it's been hidden from our eyes. You're like, no, 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 no. Uh, I, I mean, I'm here. I'm around. I'm not one who rejects the authority of Jesus. But if you go back and read about the Pharisees and the scribes and the chief priests and the leaders of the people, they were always around. 
They're, all, they're in every, practically every story. So just because you and I are around today does not mean that we are rejecting and resisting the authority of Jesus. But he is a king and we have to respond. And some people respond to reject that authority. The second group of people we see in his parable are faithful servants. Look back, chapter 19, verse 13. And he called 10 of his slaves and gave them 10 minus and told them, engage in business until I come back. But his subjects hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, we don't want this man to rule over us. And at his return, having received authority to be king, he summoned those slaves he had given money to so that he could find out how much they had made in business. The first came forward and said, Master, your mina has in earned ten more minas. Well done, good slave, he told him. Because you have been faithful in a very small matter, have authority over ten towns. And the second came and said, Master, your mina has made five minas. So he said to him, you will be over five towns. So there were the faithful servants. And we see those in the story that immediately follows as Jesus comes into Jerusalem. Look, verse 29. As he approached Bethphage and Bethany at the place called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples and said, go into the village ahead of you. As you enter it, you will find a young donkey tied there on which no one has ever set. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? Say this, the Lord needs it. So Jesus tells two of his disciples, hey, go and steal a donkey for me. And when you get caught, here's what you're supposed to say which some of you have always wanted the thrill of stealing something. If Jesus tells you to steal something, it's cool. Just be careful he's the one who told you to steal it. <laughs> and so they do. They go and get the donkey and they untie it. And sure enough, somebody's like, hey, what are you doing with my donkey? And they just say, the Lord needs it. And that guy said, the Lord needs it. And they take the donkey. If you're wondering about why it was a donkey, historically in Israel, that's what kings would do. They would ride in uh, to Jerusalem on a donkey. When Solomon became king, King David was old in the Old Testament. He was old and he was dying. One of his older sons made a move on his throne. My father's almost dead. And so he assembled some people, started throwing himself a party as a, his own inauguration. Meanwhile, David takes his younger son, Solomon, sets him on a donkey and rides him in to the city of Jerusalem. So it became a thing for uh, kings to ride in on a donkey. And that's what Jesus is doing here. I, I wonder uh, what these two disciples were thinking. You know, this is a huge moment. Remember, they're thinking here and now. This is it. We're going to get the donkey. You know, I wonder if they were like, Did, is this cool or is this weird? I mean, we left our jobs for this and now he's sending us on errands. I, you know, I wanted to be number one right-hand man and I wanted to be number two right-hand man. With the, now we're going to get the donkey. Were they excited about it? Did they, they, did they know, hey, this is it. This is the donkey. He's riding the donkey. Maybe it was the, the best job, whatever it was, whether they knew what they were doing or didn't. It was a simple task. And really, that's the difference between faithful servants and unfaithful servants. The faithful servants are willing to do the simple tasks. The simple Jobs of faithfulness. You know, we all have spiritual heroes. We have those people we would consider spiritual giants and they're just awesome and we look up to them and it's like when they pray, God just hovers right above their prayer and it's like when I pray, it's like I gotta shoot it on a missile all the way up through the upper 
reaches of the atmosphere to get it up there. But when they pray, gosh, it's like God comes to meet them. And I feel like I got to make my way up there. And then we have, you know, their Bible is like, it looks like they actually read it and they love it. You know, I love my Bible. Like I love like my fourth cousin. I'm like not totally sure, sure who he is, but I love him in like a family way. And, you know, but they, theirs looks like it's red and they probably didn't even rough it up right before they came into church. So it looked like they had done something <laughs> with it this week. I, what I found is those people that I consider, consider spiritual giants and spiritual heroes, there's not that much difference between them and me other than that they're willing to do all the little stuff that I'm not willing to do. That's the only thing separating you from you and your spiritual hero is your spiritual hero is willing to sacrifice things that you are not yet willing to sacrifice. They're willing to put in time that you have not yet been willing to put in. There's nothing stopping you from being just like them other than you and me. They just do a simple task of faithfulness. Go and get the donkey. And then these faithful servants, they take off their cloaks and they lay them on the ground. Verse 36, as he was going along, they were spreading their robes on the road. What they were saying is, Jesus, you're the king. You, you, you're too exalted to be even that your bride would have its feet on the real ground. I, we're going to lay out a red carpet for you of our own cloaks, what we have here with us. And then they begin to ascribe the words of God, the words of the prophets, the words of the psalmist to Jesus. They quote Psalm 118, verse 26. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. These faithful servants. And notice back in the parable, the servant who brought 10 minas in return was celebrated in the same way as the one who only brought five minas. Now they were given different responsibility, 10 towns of responsibility for the one who brought 10 and five for the one who brought five. But the five isn't less honor and less pleasure from the master than the one who brought 10. They were both faithful servants, which is great news for us because what that tells us is God knows your capacity. God knows the seasons of your life when you can bring a full measure back to him, when you can bring a 10. And he knows the seasons of your life where five is the best that you can do. He knows your capacity and he also knows your heart. He knows in your heart when you wanted to bring a 10, but all you could bring was five. And here's what it is. He knows your capacity and he knows your heart, which is so encouraging to us. And it's so terrifying because he knows your capacity and he knows your heart. Listen, some of you, he knows your capacity right now and the capacity that you're bringing back to him is way less than the capacity he made you to bring. You're bringing a two and he looks at your life right now and he says, you should be bringing me nothing less than 10 because I know what you can do. I know how fruitful you can be. I know what's possible. I know how I wired you up. I know the moment that you're in. I know the season that you're in. He knows your capacity and he also knows your heart. Listen, he knows the difference between, look at me, stressed and stress. 
He knows real stress and he knows Facebook stress. Oh, so stressed, man. So listen, he knows the difference in me between busy and lazy. He knows the difference. He knows when I'm really busy and when I'm maxed out and I'm running on empty and he knows when I'm acting like I'm running on empty, but I have a full tank because he's the one who put the fuel in the tank. He knows the difference. He knows your capacity and he knows your heart. So some of you are bringing all you can bring today and you're, you're trying to get into the word as much as possible, but you've got like a two-year-old running around and they're climbing on furniture and they're spitting up everywhere and you have to feed them every three minutes. He knows that. Moms, he knows. He knows that you're at your wit's end. He knows you're trying to make sure they got good grades and they turn out to be good people and God knows your husband's not helping the way that he should. He knows all that. He knows all that. So if you're only able to clock in 15 minutes of the word, but your heart was for more and you were in it, but then the baby monitor went off, he knows, he knows your heart. Be encouraged. Don't worry about comparing what you're bringing back to what somebody else is bringing back. But if you look in and you know, I have the capacity for 10 and I've been coasting with a five. He knows that too. Today we should go, no, the king has come. The king has come. I wanna be a faithful servant. And a faithful servant operates at capacity. There's those who reject Jesus' authority. There's the faithful servants and then there's the unfaithful servants. In the parable, chapter 19, verse 20, he says, And another came and said, Master, here is your mina. I have kept it hidden away in a cloth because I was afraid of you, for you're a tough man. You collect what you didn't deposit and reap what you didn't sow. And he told him, I will judge you by what you've said, you evil slave. If, I, if you knew I was tough, collecting what I didn't deposit and reaping what I didn't sow. Why didn't you at least put the money in the bank? And when I returned, I would have collected it with interest. So he said to those who are standing there, take your mina away from him and give it to the one who has 10 minas. The unfaithful servants. You know, for me, when I read these stories that follow, I think the people, just the people, the crowds, they're the unfaithful servants. They're not against Jesus. They're not actively rejecting his authority. I mean, even look what it says. They were captivated by it, verse 48, but they could not find a way to do it because all the people were captivated by what they heard. And when the Pharisees and scribes and chief priests and leaders, they want to be honest about John the Baptist, they can't because the people love John the Baptist. And they, they want to assassinate him that very hour, but they feared the people. The people wouldn't let them. And yet, as you read the rest of these Holy Week stories, on the way to Jesus' arrest on Thursday night, you see the people less and less, just that mass of people who are captivated by the words, but not the same as the disciples. You see them less and less and less because that's what happens to unfaithful servants. When the stakes get high, they're nowhere to be seen. So church attendance will shrink when persecution comes. Why? Because it's filled with unfaithful servants and we all take our turn. And if the stakes got high, how many of us, and I'm saying us, that's plural personal pronouns, would I stick around? 
people are seeing less and less and less and less as Jesus' last week goes on. Stakes get high. They disappear. But what was the difference? What was the difference between the faithful servants in the parable and the unfaithful servant? Well, the faithful servants made an investment of what the king had given them. The unfaithful servant just brought back the bare minimum. This is the bare minimum. You gave me one mina, I return one mina to you. We're square. Now, I didn't make you any money. I didn't further your kingdom. I didn't go beyond the lowest expectation, but hey, here's the bare minimum. We're fine. And in the parable, the king is like, no, bare minimum is not fine. And I believe that's a word for some of us today. Bare minimum is not fine. If you just look in, I'm looking in today, seeing how many portions of my life am I just phoning in, bare minimum. If you're like me and you're like, I want to get off the train. I want to get off the bare minimum train. I don't want to just hand Jesus back the very least that I can hand back and still not get in trouble. I mean, isn't that what we're really trying to do? We're trying to thread that needle. I don't want to get judged super harsh on the judgment. I also pretty much want to do everything that I want to do while I'm on earth. I want to find that sweet spot right in between where I'm not getting in big trouble, but also getting to have a good time. That's bare minimum. And the king comes into Jerusalem and we all get a choice. We get to reject, we get to be faithful, or we get to be unfaithful. And in Jesus' parable, giving back the bare minimum is unfaithful. So if you're like me and you look in and you're going, hey, there's a whole lot of my uh, life that I'm just giving the very least that I can get away with. And we want to get off that train. A few practical things for us to do. Some of us are in a season right now where we want spiritual breakthrough. We look at other people and they're growing and, and then we look inward and it's like I'm in a desert and I'm just dry and I don't feel like my prayers are being answered. That spiritual breakthrough you're happening, that you want will, will come through something very simple. It won't come through something complicated. It won't come through some knowledge that you didn't have before. It will just come through something very simple. So here's a few very simple things that you and I can do today if we want to offer more than bare minimum. It's about making an investment. God has given you seven days a week. Invest one of those days into his people, into his church. You're like, you're gonna talk to us about church? I mean, we're at church on a spring break Sunday. And listen, extra credit for you. You can take off Memorial Day, all right? You don't have to come. It's a free Sunday for you. Just take it. You came today, take it. Yeah, uh, the best math that we can do, we think a good majority of the folks that call Bayou City home only come about half the time. And if you think, you know, that half the time is just two to three Sundays a month. Well, we can find two or three good excuses to not come to church. I'm on vacation. That's a great. You're going to see your Nana. You don't have to come to church. You know, you, you don't have to rush away from Nana to come back to church. That's understandable. But then there are a lot of times where we wake up and it's like, oh, it's cloudy. <laughs> Might rain. The courtyard's rainy outside. I don't, I don't want to get my kids wet. We blame our kids for not coming to church all the time. Our kids love church more than we do. Invest one day, one day a week into the people of God, which means come, come. I really do challenge you to be, be an every week attender. 
And, and when you come, don't be the person that's checking your clock and you're like, man, he better get me out here right now. It's, it is 1230. I'm so sorry. Uh, so maybe check your clock now, but because that's unreasonable. But, you know, don't be the first person to rush out of here. That's, you'd get no badge of honor for that. Right? You get no badge of honor. How, how, how many of us are missing out on relationships with the people of God? Because we want to be the first in line at Luby's. We don't want to wait a couple of extra people if you just lingered a little bit. So come and linger and find a job. Find a job. Why? Because the church needs help? No, because you're a faithful servant. And a faithful servant gives back more than what he received. So find a job. God's giving you 24 hours this day, today, every day this week, 24 hours. Invest one of those hours in reading the scripture and in praying. Just one. You can do it all at one chunk if you want to. You can break it up into two, 30 minutes in the morning, 30 minutes in the night. You can do four 15-minute chunks, whatever. But I'd encourage you to invest one hour one hour in praying and reading the Bible. You're like, well, I don't really know how to pray. Listen, Jesus used five phrases to teach the disciples how to pray. Just five. There's not some long chapter of complicated prayer strategy. Five phrases he used to teach his disciples and he told them, when you go and pray, don't let anybody know. So I don't want to see any of you walking up and down I-10 wearing a prayer shawl. But you can pray. There's nothing different between what you know and what your spiritual hero knows. The difference is they take their hour. That's it. Invest that hour. You can invest your money. Some of you have been giving just not regularly, just kind of whenever you feel like it, whenever you have an extra, whenever you feel like you have extra. And listen, in this economy, you're not gonna feel like you have extra. If you've lost your job, not talking to you at all. But if you're still getting a paycheck, if God was faithful to give you a paycheck this week, you should be faithful to give a portion back, a percentage back to his people, the people of God. Well, church always talking about money. We're not talking about money today. We're talking about doing more than the bare minimum. God's been faithful to give you relationships in your life. Men that you're friends with, ladies that you do coffee with and raise your kids together with. I'd encourage you to pick one of those relationships and you say to them, what the Apostle Paul said in one of his letters, you follow me as I follow Christ. I'm gonna teach you what I know. I may not even know a lot, but I know more than you. I'm gonna teach you everything I know. I want you to come to church with me. I want you to come to Bible study with me. I'm gonna text you in the mornings, just something, just praying for you and believe in you. You follow me as I follow Christ. I encourage you to take one of your relationships and do that. You don't have to sit them down. You don't have to take them out to coffee and look, I'm gonna, I'm gonna disciple you right now. You don't have to do that. But as an investment of what God has given you back into his people, you could do that. Just a few practical things to get us off of the bare minimum so that we're not unfaithful servants on accident. Because the king has come. He's come. And he doesn't always come like we think he's going to come. And he doesn't always do what we think he's going to do. But he is the king of God's kingdom. And you and I, we get a choice. You get a choice today. We can reject his authority. We can be faithful servants or we can be unfaithful servants. It's up to us. Let's pray. God, we bless you. We bless you from this place and we thank you for your word. 
And I pray that it would go in and I just pray just a simple prayer. Let us be doers of the word and not hearers only. In the name of Jesus, amen.